when you're feeling your worst pain, I want everyone who's going through this to know that that pain means that you're healing. It is the building blocks to creating this future life for yourself where you can move forward and learn to incorporate grief in your life so that you can walk side by side together. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Are you looking for online therapy? Are you stuck at home like everyone else? High stress, high anxiety, worried about the future, trying to navigate everything, have a lot of worries, had a lot of emotional roller coaster rides up and down, just like me. BetterHelp.com is one phone call away, one Zoom call away, one text away. It's an online platform for therapy. It's so perfect for now, for coronavirus, for what people are going through now. We can reach out and get the perfect therapist that meets our needs. Don't wait. Check them out. See if you can find somebody. Don't struggle. They're so affordable. They are so affordable. You're sitting at home. Every therapist is working online now. Reach out and get help you need. If you are struggling, don't struggle in silence. I am so grateful that they are giving us 10% off the first month so you can get affordable access to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge. Start your wellness, get help, get support you need. Hello, and thank you for joining me here again on Hope to Recharge podcast. The month of July, we set aside for the topic of grief. It's a very heavy topic. It's a very intense topic. It's a hard topic to speak about, but so important. And we decided to really do the research have the difficult conversations that no one wants to have because they are just so dark and heavy, but so important. And they actually, once you go into the conversation, you realize that there's light. Before you enter a conversation on grief, you feel like, oh my God, I don't want to even be here. And then when you start realizing that there's so much light within the conversation and hope, that's what we wanted to create in these conversations on Hope to Recharge podcast to help those that are grieving lost ones. Now, especially during COVID, there's so much grief. There's grief of losing loved ones without saying goodbye, grief of losing relationships because it's a new existence that we never had before and and things fell apart. There's grief of jobs. There's grief of life before COVID. There's so much grief. There's so much grief going on in the world. But the grief that I want to speak about today is grief of losing someone from suicide, death by suicide. And I have a returning guest here, which I am so grateful for. 
Anne Moss Rogers. Did I say your name properly? Anne Moss you Rogers did. this time? Anne Moss is my first name. Right, right. And she's very specific specific about Anne Moss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's the Southern gal that calls herself Anne Moss. Um, she is a mom to two boys. And at the five years ago, right, Anne? Yes, five years ago. Five years ago in June, Anne Moss lost her son death by suicide. And Anne Moss was the one that introduced me to the term of death by suicide. And ever since I recorded a year ago, it's about a year ago, a year ago that we recorded yeah. our first episode, episode number 19. If I, I highly recommend that if any of our listeners hasn't listened to our first conversation from a year ago, before you listen to this, go to the first one because it'll give you a foundation to what we're going to speak about. In the first episode, we spoke about the whole journey of her son, Charles, that um, with mental health and the struggles of mental illness and addiction and trying to find recovery and, and how he lost the battle. The shocking, shocking phone call that Anne Moss got one day to find out that her son died by suicide. Unfortunately, there are so many stories like Anne Moss's story. Unfortunately, it's heartbreaking. And one of the things that I'm so grateful to Anne Moss for is that she, I was telling her before that I feel like she's the epitome of hope after grief or during grief because she created this whole platform to allow people to feel, to speak, to share with no shame. And the entire purpose is just in order to heal, to heal and to move forward, to live, to not die with a person that passed away by suicide, but to move on. But you have to walk through the grief. You have to do the process of acceptance, anger, denial, hurt, sadness, all these steps in order to get out of the dark tunnel. And there is no express train. It just has twice, right? And Moss, right. there's, no, there's ex no express train. There's no express train. And if you, if you look at Anne Moss, you'll see her picture. She's just beautiful, smiling, positive. And, and she could have been on medication, numbing the pain in order to get up in the morning, in order to get out of bed, because the pain is so immense. The pain, the regrets, the, the what if, the whys, so many whys and so many, I would say, Anne Moss, am I going to say this right? That there's a lot of anger that happens in the beginning towards situations and you're like, what if we did this different? What if this person acted different? What if, like, how could it be? There, there's a lot of anger after a suicide and sometimes it's self-directed and sometimes it's self, it's directed at other people. So I've heard a lot about, well, it's, it's her husband's fault or it's the wife's fault or the girlfriend. That's because we really want somebody to blame. There has to be a reason this person took their lives. A lot of us don't have, I, I didn't have any prior experience with suicide in my family. And that was an issue because I wasn't aware that my son struggled with thoughts of suicide, but he had for years and that was revealed in his music lyrics. So then I read those after he died and I actually got to know my son better after he died than when he was alive. And I had to deal with that, you know, and manage and figure out and relieve that kind of guilt too. So there is, there are a lot of emotion, there's sadness, there's anger. 
relief. Some of us feel relief because, you know, I lived with a child that struggled with mental illness and addiction for years and our lives were chaos. And when he died, I felt sadness and a lot of other things, but I felt guilty for feeling relieved. And working through that just takes time. And if I had anything to say to anybody on it, it's you have to feel the feelings. We we want to push them away. And when they come on, we think we will never survive this, but we will. One thing about grief is it comes in waves. And feelings are temporary. Happiness, anger, sadness, grief, whatever it is, it's temporary. And just when you think you really can't take it anymore, that feeling of grief lifts. So at first it's about kind of discovering that rhythm. And the way I made it from one moment to the next was that I told myself as bad as it is right now, it'll never be as bad as getting the news. That part is over. It will never, ever hurt that much again. Because if I survived sitting in the back of that police car while they told me about my son's suicide, I really did feel like, you know what, I really can't survive anything. And that was what got me from one moment to the next. Can you really say that there was no greater pain and sadness and shock than that first moment in the police car? Never in my life. Never have I ever felt such absolute agony. And I actually start my book off. I've written a book, Diary of a Broken Mind, and I start with us getting the news. So it, it hits you like a bucket of cold water. But then it, it softens after that and you get the story. And I, by chapter five, you're laughing because there's a story about Charles and Bloody Bunny that I still find hilarious. And I'll go back and read my own chapter someday just because I need to remember the funny little boy that I raised. So June 5th was five years. Five years, almost to the day. Yeah, we just went through the fifth death anniversary. Yeah, five years. And since then, you started a blog and you were on TED Talk, Emotionally Naked, mm -hmm. and you created a whole form and an environment for others to come to and feel safe, non-judgmental, in order to express what they're going through. I want to go back to five years ago, to that police car moment that you speak of, that, that, that feeling of numbness in your body and you just want to throw up or you just want to just say, take me along. I'm going, I, I just want to go. I can't even process what's going on because there's so many emotions are flooding at the same time. So you came a long way, really a long way. And it's, it's inspiring because five years is not such a long time um, to come the path that you went. Um, sometimes it takes people decades to get over a loss, especially lost by suicide. It takes a long time. So you had that desire to move on. What do you think it was in you that gave you that fire that said, I want to heal. I want to, I want to live past this death. I don't want to die my emotional death with my son's passing. Actually, as the night he died, the night we found out he died, I told my husband the last chapter of our son's life can't be the last chapter of ours. Because if something happens to us and we just give up, we can't 
carry forward his legacy. And his legacy was letting other people know that they mattered. And he wasn't there to carry that forward anymore. So I needed to be. So that was probably the biggest impetus for wanting to move forward. I was also angry that no one was talking about suicide. Nobody had told us that he was a suicide risk. And people needed to know, and I wanted open conversation. And somebody had to lead that discussion. Somebody had to step out into that ugly spotlight that nobody wanted to be in and start talking about subjects that really no one wanted to talk about. And I mean, I got a ton of pushback. And the harder people push back, the more I figured out ways around those barriers. You know, but it's not like I pushed my way through them. Like the first time I went to go visit a school and ask if I could speak on the subject. They told me they didn't want me to come. They knew they had a problem, but they they knew they would have a lot of mental health alert and they didn't have a system or enough personnel to handle it. So what they were telling me is I prefer children to be out there with their their awful feelings of suicide and maybe they'll kill themselves, but we we can't manage it or handle it. So we don't want anybody to come in and talk about it because it'll stir up a hornet's nest. I couldn't argue with them. I just had to understand where they were coming from and figure out a different way to go in the, into that door. And so that's what I started to work on. And I do speak to students right now with COVID that's kind of been suspended. But I'm also writing a book about student suicide. And again, that's a healing experience. Any, I've written 1,400 blog posts for about four years. So I wrote, I've been writing my way through grief. When I write, and I wrote a newspaper article, that was really the first thing I wrote. And that took about five months to write 1,200 words. But one thing about writing is that you do go through a warehouse full of Kleenex. But there is a release and there is some relief and you start to discover patterns and you start to discover things about grief that, I don't know, I started just finding a lot of relief and recognizing that it was helping me heal and that it was a healthy coping strategy. Unlike, you know, a lot of people, I can't handle it, so I'm going to have a glass of wine or a beer or a lot of it. When you numb it, it comes back you know, 10 times worse. So if you kind of circle the wagon, so to speak, and you keep pushing the pain away, it's going to come out in ugly and unattractive ways, whether that's addiction, weight gain, skin picking, you name it. That's why I advocate finding healthy coping strategies. And one of those is writing. And another big one is finding support. It could be one good friend that can sit with you in your pain and not try to fix what can't be fixed. It might be a group. It might be a therapist. It might be a stranger who you met who's also going through the same thing. It may be a minister, a coach, a teacher, a school counselor. It could be any number of things, but I think the number one thing I I did was find and seek that support. And it really, really helped me to be in there with others. And they were the ones that encouraged me to keep writing. And it was because of something that a therapist who led the group said, and I said, I keep writing about this. And I mean, 
I'm like, I'm really being emotionally naked about the whole thing. And at the time I was writing on Facebook and she said, don't stop, keep doing it. And I said, but I don't know that anybody wants to read this stuff. I mean, it's so dark. And she said, I've read it. I, I don't find it dark. And if I'm somebody who's going through with that, I'm finding somebody who is expressing how I feel. And that makes me feel better. So I finally, shortly after that, started the blog, and I called it Emotionally Naked. And those early posts really illustrate the day-to-day change in my emotions. I mean, that for those first two years are really brutal. The first six months, unbelievably brutal. But I also went to lunch with a couple of moms who one had lost a son to overdose and another had lost a daughter to suicide. And I just needed to see somebody five to seven years down the road. And they were talking about going on vacation. And I just looked at her and I said, you seem so normal. And she goes, well, it's been seven years. But that was like, I mean, I went for a reason. That's what I wanted to find out, kind of get some kind of roadmap. Yeah. Or a visual of hope. I was saying, oh, in a few years, it might not be seven, mine might be five or 10, but people further down the line look different and are acting a little bit different. And they're telling me that they felt what I felt now, what I'm feeling now. It's not like they never felt these these horrible emotions. They told they gave you that um, clarity that what you're going through is normal. They they gave you the acceptance and and they also gifted you that visual of hope that yes, this is the process where you are now is brutal. It's it's awful, and you can you also your brain can probably not can't comprehend the idea of ever being happy again. But look at us. We were where you were a few years ago, and this is where we are now. And and it gives you a little bit of something to hold on to, like strength to continue. I can tell you that the when you're feeling your worst pain, I want everyone who's going through this to know that that pain means that you're healing. It is the building blocks to creating this future life for yourself where you can move forward and learn to incorporate grief in your life so that you can walk side by side together. So grief started out being this kind of ugly, gnarly thing that pushed me down on the floor and wouldn't get get up. But now it's it's the link I have to my loved one. And it's really the only connection I have to the one that I lost. Grief is a positive thing for me now. And for the fifth grief anniversary, I wanted to watch VHS videos. I wanted to cuddle up with my grief. I'm okay with that because I'm connecting with my beloved dad, which that relationship grows and evolves over time. And I will never stop talking about him. I will never stop loving him. And that relationship continues to grow. And I talk to him. You know, I talk to the air. Um, I talk to the windshield. <laughs> I ask him his advice. And when I'm struggling with something, I'm like, just give me a sign to keep going and pushing forward just one little nugget because I need it right now. And I'll get one little nugget. And to me, I think it's a sign from him. 
you know, you could argue that it's not, but I don't care. I choose to believe it is. And that makes me happy. <laughs> it's, I see, I, from, I did a lot of um, speaking to people that are going through grief or went through grief and I f I'm finding a pattern. Everyone is looking for signs. Everyone is looking to communicate. Everyone wants to, whether they believe it or not, they want to believe it. They want right. to know that there's a connection there. Maybe the cognitive brain is saying it can't be, but they want their heart says, I don't even care if it isn't. I'm going to keep on asking just in case the 1% that there is. Everyone I speak to is saying, I talk to them. I ask them advice. I ask for clues and I usually get something. They usually, if you're opening to, if you're open to receive the clues, whether it is or isn't it irrelevant, it's what you get the clarity out of it to move forward, the comfort. And those clues are comfort, are connection with their souls, with who, with that they, that their body died, but they didn't. They're always going to be with you, with your thoughts, with your speech, with your actions. It's, it's, as you said, it's continuing the legacy. And when we're asking the, the person that passed for their advice, they're still alive. They're still here with us. Mm -hmm. and, and he's a, with me every yeah. time I step out on stage I yeah. mean that was where he shined and that's where I feel him with me and I think it was the first time I stepped out on stage and that talk went so so well that I recognized it was time to sell the business my digital marketing business because I just wasn't getting back into that I just could have cared less right. and I wanted to move forward with this because that that was what was helping me heal i've also i'm just a completely different person i mean things that bother a lot of people like this whole coronavirus i'm sick of it you know but i know i have not been freaked out for one minute of any time during it because once you survive the suicide of a child coronavirus is nothing could i die sure i could die could my loved ones die Yes, they can die. I know that. But me worrying about it doesn't help me. And it doesn't change what the outcome might be. All I can do is be careful, follow guidelines, try to learn what I can and do the best that, that I can do. But I'm not hypervigilant and I'm not slack. I try to find that place in the middle for me. And I find joy in very, very small things. If I look up and it I love the really puffy cumulus clouds that look like cotton with the blue sky. Are you saying that because I've been posting lately almost every day about the clouds that I, I'm, I, no, you didn't I even didn't know. know no, no, I'm didn't. obsessed with clouds, obsessed. And I no, do the clouds really and, and uh, the, the, I call it the cotton candy cloud. Yes, those are my favorite. The real puffy ones. Yes. That's yeah. so funny that you're saying that, like obsession. And my kids make fun of me. And I'm like, stop the car. There's a cloud. I need to take a picture. And my kids are like, how many thousands of pictures of clouds do you need? I'm like, it's never enough. It's the comfort. Yeah, go on. Sorry, I had to interrupt uh, you. <laughs> I'm the same way. I find a lot of comfort in clouds. And I now have pictures at my house of clouds. And I mean, it's whatever works for you. But I find joy in a lot of moments. A lot of people think this happiness is this place you arrive at and you're just always, always happy. And it's not really like that. It is seizing little moments of joy and understanding that that 
is happiness. You just, you pass through this door and you become a person that you would not have been allowed to become unless this awful thing happened to you in your life. And that is the gift. Yeah. And, and a choice. You, and a choice. Exactly. And allowing yourself to enjoy your life and to see life again. I mean, if we sit around being bitter and feeling guilty for the rest of our lives, then we're not doing our loved ones. Uh, we're doing them a disservice. They are not making a choice when they die by suicide. Their brains have, I call them brain attacks. And I had to start to understand what suicide really was and really wasn't. And that helped me take the blame off myself because sitting around and blaming myself all the time, it wasn't helping anybody. It wasn't helping my cause. Why, why do that? I mean, I'm not God. There is no superhero written on my resume. So I had to learn to, you've got to go through those coulda, wouldas, shouldas, and what ifs. That's a part of the process. Nobody can talk you out of them, but you learn to manage them. Like I can't go that far down in the rabbit hole or recognizing when you're in the rabbit hole, kicking yourself back up like, okay, I'm taking a walk around the block. I'm going to go do something different. I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to call somebody from the sport group and just allowing yourself to pull yourself out of those moments where you kind of get tangled in that well, if I'd only done this or if I'd recognized this. And I, I had a lot to work through. I mean, I wrote it in my book and I put down our last phone conversation and the text message. And I made an epic mistake not going to get in. But then I'm looking back at something with a different lens. I know he was going through withdrawal. I know he was despaired in a deep, dark depression, which he would never have admitted to me before. And I didn't know any of that at the time. So why, why am I judging myself on a moment that took me two years to figure out after he died? You know, I wasn't going to be able to have the miracle answer on the phone that day. You know, it, I didn't have enough information. One of the things that um, that I ponder about a lot when I speak to people after death by suicide, especially parents. So there's there's a loved one. There could be a spouse, and there could be a friend. There could be a family member. It could be a parent. But when it comes to children, it's like something else. It's it's. I mean, I sh I'm not comparing the loss, but I'm comparing the shame, the regrets, and the self. Uh, the the self negative talk that a parent gives themselves i i was given this child from god to be in my hands to be to give them the best life to be the role model to be their their guardian right god gifted him to mm -hmm. me how did i mess up how do we how do we not beat ourselves up as parents to a degree that that freezes us from moving forward because there's so much shame and so much regret besides a normal grief of, let's say, someone dying from, God forbid, cancer or from a car accident, that there wasn't like I wasn't involved. I wasn't supposed to know. Like with, with cancer, people are very, very proactive to save, to say they do the best they can. 
when it comes to death by suicide for mental illness, did the parent do the best they can? And how do we not live with that guilt and shame that can kill us as parents? It's another layer of grief that other griefs don't need to go through. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, it was within minutes of the officer telling me that I think it was within the first minute. How could I be such a crummy mother that my child would check out on me? I failed. I felt like a failure. The, you know, I protected my child from running out in the street, getting abducted by strangers, you know, falling off a diving board. How how can you protect somebody from their own brain? That just didn't even occur to me was possibility. For me, the first thing I had to tell myself was that one day I would forgive myself. I didn't know how or when or what it would look like or how I would get there. I just made, I said, one day, Ann Moss, you will forgive yourself. Because I had seen a lot of other people and it looked like they had forgiven themselves. So I just made that pledge to myself. And then, because the one thing I was supposed to do is usher my child from childhood into a thriving adult. And I felt like I had failed that. The other thing I needed to do was to understand what suicide was. So I, when I started this blog, one of the things I did was I put out, I know people go to Google looking for ways to die. And I started writing articles so that they would be ranked on Google and people who were struggling with thoughts of suicide would find my site and they would find hope and resources instead of step-by-step instructions on how to end their life. Because they're videos that give you step-by-step instructions to sort of maybe jumpstart somebody out of that memory pattern. Because what I've found out is that people want to tell. I didn't know that. I thought it was this kind of preordained thing. And it's not. It's like their brain is telling them they need to die. And there is availability of something to help them in their life. Is it? Then, so I want to just ask you: Is it that they need to die, or they need to they end need the to pain, end the pain, and the pain by dying? Because yeah. there's nothing else that they can conceive. Their brain is saying, "Listen, we tried everything. Nothing is ending the pain. The pain is too strong. The only way out is death." Right. It's my only option, and that's what their brains are telling them. I have no control over that. And by thinking that I could stop it is basically saying, hey, Amos, you're God, and therefore you could stop these patterns in his brain. I can't control another human being. The only human being I can control is me. And when I decided that I was going to forgive myself, I actually woke up one day and I went, holy cow, today is the day. And I wrote a blog post called Forgiving Myself. And the hardest, and I've written a lot, that was the hardest one I have ever written in my life. Because I also included our text message exchange, which looking back makes me look like a totally dismissive mom, like an idiot. But I wanted to put it out there. And I needed to put it out there. And I needed to say, even though I know I could have made a different decision, uh, maybe or maybe not, I could have rescued him. How, how do I know I didn't save him from dying by suicide before? So we look at this one instance where we didn't, 
maybe there were five or 10 before where I interrupted or said just the right thing. And he recognized it and it jump-started him out of that frame of mind. So we don't know how many times we may have prevented it in the past. They did not die by suicide because of us. It is not personal. It is some, it's a, some that happened in their brain that we had no control over and they had very little control over. It is so intense. It is so convincing and that it can last anywhere from five minutes to two hours, 20 minutes being about average. And most people don't know that. Even those going through it don't know, okay, this, this, this too will have a time limit. So a lot of times when I talk to teenagers or adults about their ideation, I'll say, well, how long does your last? And they're like, oh, nobody ever asked me that. And they'll think about it. And they usually kind of have a time. Well, a mine lasts an hour or it lasts five minutes. And I said, so the trick is making it through that period of time. So what can we trigger you to do in that period of time that may stop that brain process? So it's after talking to basically, I guess by now, a thousand people through comments, text messaging, phone calls, emails, finally was able to let go of it being this personal thing against me that I was a terrible mom or something like that. And I just decided to forgive myself. I did the best I could. And when I look back at, um, I avoided those VHS videos and converting them to watching them. But you know what happened when I did? For the first time, I saw, oh my God, my child was raised in a house of love. We, you know, we baked cakes together. We had birthday parties. We played slip and slide. We went to museums and theme parks and libraries. We were a normal family. We did normal family things. It wasn't any one thing that I did in this particular family that pushed my child in, to do suicide. You know, there just wasn't. You know, now that I know more, there's things I could have done differently, but I don't know that that would have saved him. I, I wish I would have let my son know that as much as I wanted him to get well, I loved him even if he didn't. And I think he needed to hear that, but it's different with each and every loved one. You lose a dad, you feel like you weren't good enough to hang around for and that you failed as a child. If, if it's a brother or sister, you delay your grief because the parents are so distraught. I mean, there's, there's nuances with every loss by suicide and everyone feels like mine is greater than yours or doesn't add up to yours. And they're just different. It just is different and it just plain hurts. And it is like this extra twist of a knife. Losing a child, hurts. I mean, suicide, whatever, doesn't mean it hurts more. It just hurts differently. There are a couple of nuances. Uh, the coulda, woulda, shouldas are a little bit more prevalent and hang on for a little longer. And parents <clears throat> struggle for typically a longer period of time. And there's more 
risk of them dying by suicide. Mm. After they lose a, son, a child to suicide. Actually, any parent that loses a child is has a, about a 30, 30% of parents who lose a child struggle with thoughts of suicide themselves after mm. their child has died by suicide. Wow. Or after their child has died. So it's Pat, not just it's lost. Yeah, it's, it's lost. losing a child. Grief is universally one of the more powerful, intense emotions. Some people, whether due to trauma or conditions like borderline personality disorder, experience all of their emotions on the more intense end of the spectrum, which can be challenging without some support and guidance. For those who frequently experience emotional dysregulation or emotional sensitivity, there is an online dialectical behavior therapy skills solution. Dialectical behavior therapy skills or DBT skills are essentially emotional coping skills. Check out EmotionallySensitive.com for more information. They have weekly online psychoeducational DBT skills groups attended by students around the globe and co-facilitated by a licensed DBT-trained therapist and a DBT-trained certified life coach who is in recovery from borderline personality disorder herself. Please visit EmotionallySensitive.com to learn more and ask any questions you may have about their next program, which starts on July 27th. Enrollment closes at noon Pacific on Sunday, July 26th. Again, visit us at EmotionallySensitive.com and we hope to have you in class with us very soon. Ann Moss, I have a, I kept on asking this question when you were responding to forgiveness because I think forgiveness is a huge part of grief, huge, no matter if it's by suicide or not. By suicide, any loss, we go into that. Did I do enough? Was I the right person beforehand? There's a lot of self-forgiveness, a lot, a lot of self-forgiveness that goes on during grief in order to heal a process that needs to be done. It just needs to, it just needs to happen. So in my mind, I was, I was thinking if people are listening to you and they, they lost a child or a loved one to suicide, and you explained that time, you explained it so beautifully that the brain goes into that state of convincing that that's the only way out. How, what do you tell yourself when you say, but I should have known as a parent, like you're, you're, you're taking the extra step of, of um, guilt of saying, why didn't I know as a parent to protect him? from his own brain. What do you tell yourself in order to to calm those um, vo extra voices that are, are holding you back from self-forgiveness because self-forgiveness is so hard. So they're like holding you back from doing that commitment to yourself, to living, to moving forward. You know, as parents, when we look at our children, we can't imagine that life would be so bad that they would want to take their lives. I mean, it's just really hard to fathom. Once I kind of got to a place where I could be, actually think again, because that first six months, you're just, you're kind of just a zombie. You, you recognize that you really can't keep beating yourself up over and over for the same thing. And that, that is the bottom line is that you just can't keep beating yourself over and over again. And if you do, what are you accomplishing? And I just, I just had to say, I'm going to forgive myself. I, 
I didn't know he was thinking of suicide. It just wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. We visited mental health professionals. They said he was high risk, but no one ever said he was a suicide risk. But even when I've known kids tell their parents, their parents will say, oh my God, you'll get over it. Really? They, yeah, they just don't take it seriously. People they really don't. say that? Oh yeah, I've got a whole list of things that parents say to their children that because the children have told me. And it, it, some of them just it, go pray on it. That's wow. the one. Um, you're exhausting me. <gasps> oh. I know. And these are not bad people. They just don't have the tools or the knowledge. They don't have the tools or the knowledge, and they don't understand. Or the ability. Or the- like I said, we're parents. We're looking at our child. They have a roof over their head. They, they go to a good school. They have lots of friends. They're playing sports. To us, we're not seeing what it is that could be so bad that they would end their life. It's so, think of the steps you have to do with some of the ways to die in order to kill yourself. Fathoming that a child would follow those steps because something is so bad just isn't in our DNA to see. Right, wow. And I have to kind of put myself back in that person. Because as soon as it happens, we change. And our life is split in two before Charles died and before Charles died. Every picture I see, every incident I think about is before he died or after he died. Right. So I'll say, and I mean, everything is categorized like that. Wow. Wow. I have a few questions about, about the process of grief. So the first one is you have a husband, you have another child. Sometimes there are more than only one, there's only, not only one child, there's brothers and sisters, older and younger, the ones that get along that don't get along. So the grief is different. How do we stay together while we're grieving differently in a family? I think the first thing is respect where the other person is. So at first I was a little angry that my husband was saying, you know, how many children do you have? He'd just say two. And that was it. So it was, I felt like he wasn't acknowledging it. Yeah. But that's not really fair. The reason he didn't want to say it is that his emotions were so raw that he wasn't fully trusting himself that he wouldn't totally and completely lose it in front of this semi-stranger. So the first thing I had to do was respect where other family members were in the process. My older son would run into people, and one young lady he ran into one night said, so are you in a, do you have any brothers and sisters? And he said, no. And she said, oh, so you're an only child. And he goes, no. And I'm like, <laughs> she must have thought you were quite the mystery man. <laughs> I just had to laugh at that and, uh, and listen to him instead of judging and saying, you should have said this, because... It's very personal how we feel about answering that question. I mean, to this day, somebody asks my husband, he'll say one of them died, or he might say one of them's in heaven. But I lay it all out there. My oldest is living his dream as a filmmaker in LA, and my youngest killed himself five years ago as a result of depression and addiction. I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But I also have to be comfortable with the fact that my husband is not. 
and be okay with that. And then the other thing is we tend to think we should buck up and be strong and hide our grief in front of other family members. Hiding your grief is not being strong. It is allowing yourself to grieve is, is being strong. There is no stoicism. There is no gold star that you will get for stuffing your grief and looking strong because that's if you grieve because you love and that process is the result of having loved someone. And when we hide it from our family members, they think they're not supposed to express or show their grief. And that can get pretty sticky down the line because unresolved grief is a risk factor for suicide, for addiction, and other many other unhealthy coping strategies and relationship problems. The biggest thing is to allow yourself to grieve. If you are a year out and you are still unable to enjoy activities at all, then you may be struggling with complex grief and you might need to seek out the help of a therapist who deals with complex grief or traumatic grief. And there's some people who do go through that and it doesn't mean you're weaker. It just means you need that you're a deeper feeler or that you need additional help or, you know, maybe there was trauma in your background. It's hard. And there is nothing easy about this process, but I will tell you that there are a lot of beautiful, beautiful things that happen in the process and people that come into your lives that you would have never met otherwise. And you find your more authentic self. And for that, I'm very grateful. I am more relaxed. I don't, I see people kind of judging things. I am quick. To, to notice when I'm passing judgment and I sit back and, you know, this whole protest thing. I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, some of my friends, oh, they're breaking up the statues. It's just so terrible. And then others are like, they should come down. And I decided that what I needed to do, because I'm not African-American, is to shut my face, listen, observe, and learn. Because this is not a world in which I live on a daily basis and I need to be curious. And that is, was really easy for me to do. It was a very easy conclusion for me to reach. And I'm not sure I would have been able to reach that conclusion 10 years ago. So there are many gifts I would have never chosen for it to happen this way. But I'll say that as hard and as brutal as it is, there are many gifts of grief if you allow yourself to see them. So I thank you for that because one of the things that I I see a lot is that people grief dif- grieve differently. And they're, while they're in the process of grief, there's some kind of a destruction that can happen in the family because the grief is done differently the process. So it's so, it's so important. And I don't know if it's, if it's really, if there's a, like a manuscript for it, like how do we still stay connected while we're so alone in our grief? Because each one needs to do it in their own pace, in their own way, with the ability of, of what they're made out of their history, their traumas, their upbringing, their experiences, their beliefs. 
you could be you could be together but yet so apart so how do we not how do we not fall apart but still give time for each other at the same time it's so hard it is it is so hard when we were we were moving well, we lost charles four days after we sold our house so we had to move and I remember being angry with my husband because I was packing and I was getting everything together. I was organizing all that. He was like, nowhere to be found. He just kind of checked out, I'm going to work and I was supposed to take care of all this and work and, you know, do all the stuff I had to do. And I was angry about that. But then when we moved into the house and it was time to finish up and do the paperwork, that's when I checked out. I hit that point that he had hit and I just couldn't do anything. And he took care of all of that. So we started to learn to kind of tag team when one of us is really struggling, the other of us kind of tries to raise the bar. And, you know, sometimes it was me and sometimes it was him just kind of Again, recognizing that you're never going to be on that same page. You may be having the worst despair day, really, really struggling. And your husband is like whistling and having a great day. It's important not to resent that. And then a lot of people point out the high divorce rate after loss of a child. And I don't think that is necessarily because of a loss of a child. I think it just exacerbates problems that existed before that were being brushed under the rug. And it also makes us decide that our lives need to mean more. And if we're in a relationship that is not loving, we want you know, life is short and we decide that we're going to find that loving relationship. Fortunately, my husband and I do love each other very much, still 34 years later. And we had been through a lot of that difficult work when our son struggled with addiction. So we were at support groups together and we shared a lot and we worked through a lot of our ugly stuff then. So by the time he died, we didn't blame each other. And I think it's very important that, especially to parents or family members, once you start pointing fingers, it can get, it can get really ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to notice that the family structure, love activities and, and the picture perfect family, the way you rolled before is going to change. And it doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just different. And to give it time to evolve into the new family structure that needs to happen. And it could take years. It could yeah. really take years. And I mean, I'm still not used to it. It's still weird for me to look at a picture of me and my son and my husband. So that's, that's my family. I'll always kind of feel like somebody is missing. And I've got this family picture and I have this one and it it represents two different lives that before and after. And, you know, I just accept it now that that's just the way it is and I can't change it. Right. I have a few more questions. Sure. One of the things that I always, always battle with myself when I see someone that's going through um, grief after a loss, any loss. It could be somebody that lost somebody in COVID, whether they were old or young. 
Uh, it could be somebody that loved, uh, that lost somebody from a tragic disease. It could be any loss. Any loss is horrible. Any loss. What, what is the, I never know what the right thing to say when you see that person. And I, and I speak to a lot of people that are very angry that people say, uh, I'm sorry for your pain. I can't imagine what you're going through. Um, or, or look the other way and try to avoid because they don't know what to say. There's such a confusion and everybody needs something else in a way. I, I'm hearing from, from the interviews and from people that I speak to, everybody wants something else. As people that support others or want to show up properly, what do we do in order to not make things worse? Because we really sometimes don't know what to say. I think what I would like grieving people to do is connect with a very close friend. And I've actually created a worksheet. I haven't, I plan to put it in with my book. I've got an ebook that's free on Emotionally Naked called Coping Strategies for Grief and Loss. And I'm going to include in that email a worksheet of points to go over with a friend so that you can let them know what it is you want. I wanted a house full of people and the good Southern tradition, people just knew to bring booze and Kleenex and food and the house is packed from 11 to 5 every day for seven days straight. I loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Other people don't want that at all. How do you find out what one person wants is that we, the grieving people, need to tell one person and that one person needs to communicate it to others. You know, do you want somebody coming over and mowing the lawn? Do you want somebody to talk about your child? Most of us do, or the father. So basically asking some of those questions, one of the best things anybody said, and this, my husband loved this, somebody came in and said, I'm so sorry to hear about Charles. I see that your grass is really tall. We're going to come over tomorrow at 10 a.m. and cut the grass. Is that okay with you? So being very intentional when you're making an offer. Now, if you're just running into somebody, just say, what I want to do. Now, during COVID, you can't give somebody a hug. Just say, what I want to do right now is give you a hug. I don't have the right perfect words to say, but just know that my heart breaks for your loss. I'm sorry for your loss is fine. We don't have any kind of perfect phrase. And I tell other grieving parents that don't judge somebody by what they say. I made the decision from the very beginning that if somebody said anything, it was coming from a place of love. That if I transported myself back to my former self, would I know the exact right thing to say to me? Probably not. So we need to just understand that if somebody comes up and says something to you that has taken an incredible amount of courage and to appreciate the fact that they made that effort. What bugged me is when people said nothing at all. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend, a good friend, who since my son died has never contacted me ever again. Wow. <clears throat> never? Never, not once. And that is just weird because I really was with her during a very, very difficult time. And it was embarrassing and humiliating for her. And when this happened, she just dropped me like a hot potato. 
that's not my problem. That's hers. But you're not judgmental. You're saying she doesn't have the ability or capability. That's her story, her stuff. And I'm not going to let it, right? I'm not going to let it affect me. Even though it's hurtful, I'm not going to bring that with me because it's not helpful. It's hurtful, but not helpful. So we have to just say, okay, who knows? Right. Uh, there's, it was too tough a place for her to meet me where I needed to be met. And I just had to appreciate that that what had to happen in that circumstance. And all these other beautiful people came into my life and, you know, that happened. So I really, I make note of it because people need to know that that's what happens. But I don't sit around pining every day. Well, what did I do? Or sorry to interrupt your life with my beautiful tragedy. And, you know, it's just it's a waste of my time. Losing a child or losing someone can rewrite your address book. So could it be going back to what's the right thing to do as the person that a friend or acquaintance or just a neighbor or maybe just somebody that knows your face and heard your story and meets you in the supermarket? Can it be that the one that's grieving wants to not be noticed and just be like everybody else because they don't want that um, mercy or the that, oh, poor you, you lost your child. They just want to be treated like everybody else and they don't want to be met in the supermarket. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. Your pain is... Th- that could be also, right? It could be. And that's why I advocate that if you're one of those people that doesn't want to talk about it, and I really don't mean meet pe- that many people who just say, I don't want to talk about it at all or have it acknowledged. That's actually a very small percentage. I'd say maybe 5%, but we never know, right? I'm always open with it because people know what's happened to me. So, and now I'm well known for that. So I can get by with it. I say, say something anyway. My mother called somebody that she'd known that the child had died by suicide. And they rebuffed her. I mean, as soon as she said, you know, she called, and I'd like to talk to Mrs. So-and-so. And once they realized who she was and that she had lost a grandson's suicide and that she was probably calling to say something about that, they cut her off. And they were like, and I said, Mom, you got to give yourself credit for trying. They're just not there yet. And most of the time, that would be welcome. That's a rarer event. But suicide is so stigmatized. Yeah, very stigmatized. And it's hard to know how to, as you said it before so beautifully, meet the other person where they're at. Right. And that's and what's I very think, su- important by support, to know that. I think you can always ask them. You know, I... I don't know exactly what to say. I'm I'm very sorry to hear about your father, your son. And if you have a story about them to share that we all we all want the stories. Right. One of the beautiful things that you taught me a while ago, somebody died by suicide and from the community and I called and Moss and I'm like, What could we do? How do we show up? How do what do we do for the parents? She said, Collect stories and make a little 
either notes or a booklet or something and give it to the parents will be the best gift you can give them, the best support, because they're, as Anne Moss explained so nicely, there are no more stories coming in the future. There's only the past. And the only thing that they can live the future with the, their child that died by suicide or the loved one is by sharing stories that they can bring them into the present and to now. And I think that was the biggest gift. Actually, I shouldn't say the biggest because you gave me a lot of tips, a lot, a lot of tips. But you were saying, yeah, the grief, when someone is grieving, share stories, share something that they can hold and take into the future, hold it now and take that into the future. It was, and, and it was amazing. It was amazing. All the friends wrote notes and it was one of the most amazing gifts they got really. So, so thank you. But these are things that there's no way we could have known. And if you wouldn't tell me that I wouldn't know. Not only was it helpful for the parents, but it was helpful for the students to write those notes as well. That helps them manage their own grief. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to end off. um, You were talking originally about the, the idea that you need to find support. It's really almost impossible to do this alone. And it doesn't mean that you don't need alone time. Sometimes you would need to sit at home and and not get out of bed that day. And you don't want anybody comforting you that day. But to get out of grief, you need support. You need a support group, a therapist. Uh, we're, um, not, we're not meant to grieve alone. Right. It's, it's, it's too hard of a process. And I just finished reading a book that came out recently. Um, you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. And it was exactly what you were saying. Find the therapist, the support, the group, the best friend, the the person that can meet you where you're at and help you move forward and give you permission to eventually live and smile again. To and Like you said with your friends that you met after they lost, they were seven years into the loss, so they were going on vacation. They smiled again. So surround yourself with that, with those groups, with those people that will give you hope, because this is what I want to end off with. As long, as much as grief is awful, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal, right? It's, there's, there's no words to talk about the, the, you can't even comprehend it until you go through it, but there is life after grief and not feeling that I want to just have a few words from you. How does one smile again, go on vacation again, um, look forward to something again, look forward to living life like they did from before without that guilt and saying, the person that died would want me to live with joy and happiness and move forward. So how do we like go into that place without the guilt? I think really just believing that one day it will happen, that one day you will laugh again and love again and live again, and that it takes a very long time. And sometimes it takes people longer than others. And don't put yourself on the same timeline as that somebody else is on. But just you just need to have faith that you will feel that way again. And a friend of mine said, she suffers from mental illness. She suffers from depression. And after her son died, she said for the first two years, she felt obligated to live. That was the only thing that kept her alive because she felt obligated to live. And so she 
met those obligations until it was at a time where she could actually feel that herself and want to move forward and want to live again and find joy and do things. So I think that when you feel like you're not moving forward, you, you've got to just push yourself a little bit, uh, go outside your comfort zone, say yes to those things you've said no to before. And then the next thing is just believe that you're, you are going to enjoy these things again. But if you find that you really can't, that can signal that you need some additional grief support and may need to work through uh, traumatic grief with someone. Because if you are more than a year out and you are unable to enjoy any outings with friends or any conversations and you're still finding yourself in a deep dark hole every single day, you need to find some additional support for that. And because we all over time start to learn to walk beside grief because grief is going to be with us for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And we incorporate it into our lives in a way that we can live with grief beside us. And, you know, I have moments where I still struggle. So Anne Moss, thank you for sharing your story and being so open and um, sharing your journey in order to empower others to live after such a tremendous loss and pain and giving those that are in darkness now hope to look at you just like you looked at that friend and you said, oh, I can get there. I can get there. You're, you're the vision of that person that somebody holds on to and say, okay, I might be in the blackest black mode now and I cannot even fathom ever being happy again or going out for coffee with friends or even on vacation or smiling or looking at a picture without crying. But I'm looking at Anne Moss and I'm, she's my, my vision of hope that one day the pain will just shift. It'll be a little bit different. It'll come less often. It, and I have hope that I can, I can move on in life and create a meaning in life and continue the legacy of the lost one. So I really, really appreciate the fact that you came and shared. I know, I know that you devote your life for this. It's so incredible. It's really so incredible. I want to give my listeners directions. Where can they find you if they want to follow your blog? You wrote your book. So give my listeners some direction on where, where they sh should go follow you or anybody else that you felt that was helpful when you were going through your grief. Um, my blog is Emotionally Naked and it's EmotionallyNaked.com. And you can also find it at Amos.com. And then my professional speaking site is annmossrogers.com. Mm -hmm. if, if somebody wants to bring me on as a speaker or, you know, to ask questions or that sort of stuff to get in touch. Of course, anybody can subscribe to the, to the blog. And I do answer when, when my emails go out, a lot of people will reply and ask me questions or, mm -hmm. or tell me something they think that would be helpful for me to provide. And that, that's very helpful for me to see. And then my book is, if you go to my page, there's a little thing at the bottom. And all you have to do is click that plus sign. And it's a guide to where the book is sold. It's sold on Amazon. It was sold at Barnes & Noble, but they have sold out online for the fourth time. Yay! Wow! I know, I know. And I mean, it's not, it, in a way, it's sad because that means that so many people are struggling with lost suicide. Yes, and a lot of people with children who struggle with addiction also get the book because right. he suffered with a heroin addiction too. And right. then he 
you know, a mental illness. So it seems to appeal to a lot of people because Charles struggled with a lot of things. Right. So we can get that book. There's also a blog. I asked Anne Moss where, uh, what books she recommends um, when she was going through the grief. She wrote a blog and it's on a uh, recommended books on grief and loss. We're putting the link to this blog in the show notes. You can go there. You're going to see a specific link to one blog of Ann Moss. And she talks about the books that she recommends that are good through grief, even though Ann Moss, tell them what you said when I asked you what you read. I, I struggled with reading anything, but the book After Suicide Loss, Coping With Your Grief, second edition by Jack Jordan, I was able to read that in snippets. And that was a very helpful book to me. But I I wasn't able to kind of sit down and read a book like I had traditionally done. It it would just all kind of run together after about two pages. I just didn't have the concentration. But this didn't require you to, you know, constantly... You could read one, one thing at a time. Also, I have a an ebook called Coping Strategies for Grief and Loss. And two of us, two of the authors for that free ebook. And I'll I'll give you um there'll also be a link for that as well. And that's just a download that lists like 19 strategies and you can kind of look at the table of contents and say, nah, 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 oh that sounds like it's a good possibility for me. So it just names a bunch of different resources and ways because we can't make this go away, but we can manage it. And it's got some healthy coping strategies in it. Thank you. And it's important for those that are grieving to know that if you cannot read, don't judge yourself. Know that it's normal to feel like you can't go through anything. You can't see, you can't focus. And just know that it comes back with time and be kind to yourself and be patient with yourself and don't judge yourself just because others are grieving differently. Allow yourself to grieve the way you need to grieve. And just like we heard from Anne Moss now, she couldn't really follow. And I'm hearing this from a lot of people. I'm not ready to open a book. I can't really. But within years, it comes back and that's when we can do the work. And it doesn't have to be right after the passing of the loved one. It could be years. It could be years. It could be. And that you're never, it's never too late to start the grieving process. But I was able, I wrote, that's what I did every day. And my subscribers that are new to grief are able to like read one or two blog posts, even if they can't read a book. And some of them watch the videos. So it, it just depends on the person. Right, where they're holding. Yeah. Thank you for all these resources. I appreciate it. And Moss, what's your next big thing? I am working on a book called um, The Emotionally Naked Truth About Student Suicide. And I was approached by a publisher, Jossie Bass, is a division of Wiley, big education publisher. And Kim O'Brien, PhD, and I are co-writing that book. I'm kind of leading the writing and she's kind of, you know, going over it and editing it after me. And uh, it is for educators 
from principals, anybody that works in the school, or any parent advocates that focus on prevent, uh, preventing student suicide. It's so important. And um, I've been getting requests from students to speak about mental illness on our podcast. And we're going to be devoting this year Excellent. a whole month, maybe even two, to um, mental health awareness in teens. And it's going to be divided by like topics of how educators should approach it, how principals in, in schools should introduce it, parents that want to help their, how to accept your child and work with your child when they're, when they're struggling, children, how to approach your parents when they're not interested in listening, which I find uh, that it's that, huge, right? Yeah. And, and that's because kids will reach out to me and say, I don't want to tell my parents. Who do I tell? And I'm like, a coach, mm -hmm. uh, a teacher. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the parent is not the best person to tell. Right, right. Sometimes they are, mm -hmm. but uh, there are many times that they're not the right person to tell. Yeah, and I'm hearing that over and over, and it's shocking to me, but I keep on hearing that kids tell their parents and their parents are like, oh, it's all in your mind. Go play, distract yourself. Like oh, they're go not- pray on it. Yeah, right. Uh, or, or, oh, don't be such a baby, get over it. Like, and they don't really take action and finding yeah. out because they're scared to come to accept the fact that their child is struggling. Well, it's just difficult for parents to imagine that their child would be in such an awful place. Absolutely. And the thing is that it's part of students' conversation now. Almost every teenager that expresses some depression, I always ask the question, are you thinking of killing yourself? And they'll, lots of times they'll say yes or not today or, or I did last year. It is part of the vernacular and conversation, and it needs to now be part of educators' conversation too. Yes. Yes. And to make it not a shame. Like oh, that it's a that, stigma. That it, yeah. Remove the stigma. Remove the stigma. Open the conversation and remove the thought that it's weakness. It's real when we talk about our mental illness, there's nothing more stronger. Like I can't think of something more heroic and strength in that. And unfortunately, it looks like weakness and we have to break that. So yes, we're going to have on Hope to Recharge a whole segment on teens and mental health, suicide awareness, prevention, conversations, education, all that. So stay tuned to when that. Are you gonna, when are you going to do that? Um, or hopefully October, November. Oh, you got to do it in October. The, the book is due at the end of November. Oh, okay, I might, fine. I might see somebody, I might hear so somebody on the podcast. So I'm good. Like, yeah. yeah. We're doing interviews for the book now. So, oh, wow. So definitely, definitely we'll have you on when that comes out. Well, maybe we'll have the right. therapist at the same time. We can have a, a shared conversation. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So thank you for joining me here. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for inspiring. And thank you for keep on showing up even then when it's so, so hard. I really, really appreciate it, Amos. Well, I really appreciate your support, your continued support. Uh, thank you so much, Montana. And if anybody here is listening and thinks of one person they can share this with that they might save their lives or help somebody after somebody died from suicide, get over the grief and and continue life share this with one person one person who will that be thank you for listening bye till next time bye
Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.